Hello, and welcome to a special presentation of Harper Audio Presents, recorded at the American Booksellers Association's Winter Institute in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Winter Institute is a gathering of independent booksellers, publishers, and authors. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is... My name is Nicholas Butler. I wrote a novel called The Hearts of Men, which will be published by Echo on March 7th, 2017. Nicholas Butler is the author of the novel Shotgun Love Songs and a collection of short stories entitled Beneath the Bonfire. Born in Allentown, Pennsylvania and raised in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, he was educated at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop. His work has appeared in Plowshares, The Christian Science Monitor, The Kenyan Review Online Narrative, The Progressive, and many other publications. Along the way, he's worked as a meat packer, a Burger King maintenance man, a liquor store clerk, a coffee roaster, an office manager, an author escort, and innkeeper. He presently lives on 16 acres of land in rural Wisconsin adjacent to a buffalo farm. He is married with two children. Were I to entice my sister, Mm -hmm. who reads a wide variety of books, to read The Hearts of Men, what would you hope that I would say to her? I would hope that you would tell her that it's this crazy novel that takes place largely at a Boy Scout camp in northern Wisconsin, and that it's got a great main character named Nelson Doty that you follow from age 12 to age 70. Um, and that I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to this book from the standpoint of um, it's concerned with how difficult it is to be married, how difficult it is to raise a child, how difficult it is to maybe have a moral compass in a world where um, maybe that's becoming harder. Um, And yeah, I I, I don't know. So tell tell us a little bit more about the setting and um, Nelson and and Jonathan. Yeah. Um, so the book is sort of split into three acts, and the first one I th- is in the early '60s. You meet uh, Nelson, who is twelve or thirteen years old, and he's kind of the black sheep of his Boy Scout troop. He's very competent and kind and earnest, but these qualities make him the whipping boy uh, of the camp. Um, and he sort of forms an unlikely friendship with Jonathan Quick, who's more like the popular boy. Um, and uh, some sort of terrible things happen to him in the first act uh, that kind of inform the rest of his life. In the second act, which happens in the 90s, uh, Jonathan and Nelson are uh, reunited for, for a dinner at a supper club in northern Wisconsin, and then there's flashbacks to when Nelson was in Vietnam. Um, yeah, and then the third act goes out into the the near future when they're old men and grandparents. And it's a story of men, but I, I'm sure you hope and expect women to read it. So, but so address yeah. that sort of. What do you say to those that worry? Oh, this is all about. You know, the boy. I, I even read something that was like, "This is more than a Boy Scout book," and I'm like, "Oh, I didn't even know that was." I didn't know that was a thing either. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think if you set out to write a great Boy Scout book, you'd be be attracting a really, really small audience. Um, I think think if if a novel is written by a man, 
and it's got men in the title, it's sort of a trap in a way. Uh, people think that it's going to be just for male readers or that it's just about men. I don't look at it that way at all. In the third act of the book, for example, there's um, it's it's narrated by a female character. Um, part of the project of the book is that these young boys realize that their fathers are flawed and it, it's their mothers that have basically kept the world in place. Um, and I think, you know, f- for me, looking at some of the things that are happening in the world right now, what I'm scared about is that there are going to be teenage boys growing up in America right now who are lacking maybe the most important role model for how to behave as a man and how to have a moral compass, how to treat women. Um, and I think this book is is sort of talking about that. It's definitely talking about that. And as it, it, I will admit there were times when I found it really hard to read because of the treatment of boys and men um, to each other. I remember um, we, we publish um, Post Secret. I don't know if you know that book. Where it's, it's a guy in Virginia who, who people send him postcards and it's mm-hmm. your secrets and they, Rick Warren and they send him secrets. And yep. in a conversation that I had one time around that book where I found some of the secrets so like disturbing, yep. one of my colleagues was talking about um, what happened to him at camp or you know one of the worst things that happened to him because there's obviously an event in, well, not obviously, but there's an event in your book that's just horrifying, but completely realistic. Like you could completely understand how and why that happened. But he talked about being held down by one kid and then his eyes being held open and then another kid spitting into his eye. And again, it was just so, so awful. But, and, and I must say, I heard, I heard that years ago. I thought of it again when I read your book because I thought, geez, these boys, they do this stuff to each other. Like we yeah. don't, girls don't do that. I don't really know. I can't come up with three examples of stuff. I mean, we do it in a, a different way, but it was kind of, I kind of need to know, oh yeah, if you're not careful, if mm-hmm. if you're not um, active in in exposing them to the other side of this, they're, they run around like wild things. I mean, yeah. this concerns me. And was that yeah. your was that your experience? It's a long way of working well, to that question. There were, I think, there were two big influences um, be, just before and and while I was writing this book. One was that I read Lord of the Flies for the first time as like a you know thirty seven year old dad with a seven year old boy who's just entering Cub Scouts. And I, you know, I think in America, most people probably read Lord of the Flies when they're in middle school or maybe high school. I, for some reason, it I never did. It just blew me away. Right? It's an uh, terrifying. astonishing, terrifying, beautiful book. The second thing that's going on is that uh, I'm watching the Republican nomination process because it's now it takes a full freaking eighteen months or whatever. And just watching a total loss of decorum, um, such that you had eighteen people standing on a stage and behaving not unlike little boys, yeah, talking about their penis size, right? Um, and that really left a um, imprint on me. I had no, I had no idea who was going to win. If you'd asked me, I, I never would have said Trump. But, but what I was looking at was just. What is going on? 
why aren't we talking about policy? Why aren't we talking about intellectual things? Why, you know? So. So let's say I, my sister reads the book and she mm-hmm. and I have a conversation. Is there something that you hope that we, your readers, whether be they male or female, get out of the book? Do you, do you have a, a desired effect? Well, I think my desired effect, you know, is pretty simple. I, I hope I hope that somebody has enjoyed the book. Uh, I hope that you know. I think I'm looking for an emotional reaction from someone. Beyond that, there's once you put a book out there in the world, you have no control over it. I mean, I would love it if people loved this book and went back, read my first two books, and were on board for supporting me the way that I read, you know, books and have followed people's career all along. I think that's probably like the greatest compliment or, you know, this book is a success if you're on board for what's yeah, in the future. That's you know? in, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that they say, oh, this is a a voice, this is a a brain whose output I want to I want to follow and, and make sure I don't miss anything. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's... I mean, I bought every book, every book, poetry, fiction that Jim Harrison has ever put out there. I bought everything Louise Erdrich has ever put out there, including poetry. Um, and I'm excited about following people's careers like that. So I'm just kind of starting out. This is my third book, but um, I'm hopeful that I'll have you know a readership like that. And talk to me about your sense of place and, and um, what that means to you in your life where mm-hmm. you live and in your work where you, where you set your stories. Yeah. Well, I, both of my novels, The Hearts of Men and Shotgun Love Songs, were uh, absolutely located in northern Wisconsin, pretty close to where I grew up and where I live now. My short story collection was kind of set in the upper Midwest. I mean, some in Minnesota, uh, southern Wisconsin, but it's the landscape that I know the best. Uh, I know how people talk, what their jobs are. Um, and I've never, I've never really felt a great draw to situate a book somewhere else, you know? I mean, and part of that is because of, I think, like my literary heroes. Jim Harrison put all his books pretty much in rural Montana or rural northern Michigan. Louise Erdrich is putting it in rural Minnesota. Um, so, you know, I'm really proud of where I come from and I can see everything in my mind really well. Obviously, I went to a Boy Scout camp from every year from nine to whatever, 17. So I know what that camp looks like. And yeah. Yeah. And you, you take us with you, obviously. I mean, I know what that camp looks like now, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I never went to camp. <laughs> so thank you for that. I mean, seriously, that was a great, you, you transported me there. It was fun to write. I can't say it was fun to read, but I'm really glad I read it. And mm-hmm. I really like, you know, I really love your writing. Mm, and thanks. and I will read you. Like now I, I will read you. I hadn't read your first one. I really will read you now. So thank you for that. So I'm going to ask you some questions about your life as a writer in general. Yep. What natural gift would you most like to possess as a writer? Laser focus, concentration. That'd be helpful. And what faults do you feel like you most indulge as a writer? ESPN.com, eBay.com. <laughs> eBay? What do you get uh, off eBay? 
I'm, I'm too embarrassed to share that. Okay, uh, yeah. You know what? No, no, never That's, ask a person what they buy on eBay. It's right. not going to be a good answer. You're right. For my that mom, was... it's long and burger baskets. It's not long and burger <laughs> baskets for me, but uh, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I'm just now, uh, you know, 100 years ago, somebody's writing it longhand or they're writing it on a typewriter. Now, your typewriter is a movie theater and a music venue and. A lot of other more distracting things. It's, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think is your most marked characteristic as a writer? My most marked characteristic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's marking it? All right. Um, let's, I don't know. Just what do you think? Like, what do you think? Let's say, let's put it this way. What do you think is your most identifiable characteristic as a writer? Um, sincerity. Yeah, that is true. You're very, you, you're very sincere person. I can tell. Also, what do you consider your greatest achievement as a writer? Um, I'm a full time writer. I don't. I don't have another job. Uh, when and where are you happiest as a writer? When I'm writing. When I'm fully immersed in a project and um, and my my focus does tighten up. And I'm just at my kitchen table for six, seven hours a day or 12 hours a day. And um, that's the best feeling in the world to be creating something out of nothing. You work at your kitchen table? Yeah, I've never really had like a, a proper office. So a lot of times it's kitchen table, sometimes it's a cafe, sometimes I'm just in bed. I've never really found. You've never had a dedicated place? No, I hope yeah. someday I will, but it. But part of it is people just make up a bunch of you know kind of excuses why they can't do work. They need to be in this space, and yeah. So you want to keep just, that loose. You just have to do it. You know, you just have to find a time and place to do it. So, yeah. Um, tell me about your how you name your characters. I think naming characters is really hard. I, I would think so. Really hard. Um, I think Dote, like Nelson Doty, Doty. I think the believe. I believe the word doty means something along the lines of earnest or good. So I did a little, I wanted his name to reflect who he was as a character. Um, there's kind of a villain towards the end of the book. I won't kind of share that, but I gave him a Nazi sounding last name because I wanted him to be a terrible villain. Um, Do you often have to change your character's name? Yes. Yeah. I wish that I had. Annie Pruel. I think Annie Pruel, like in the shipping news, every one of her characters is perfectly named. They all have slightly bizarre but believable names, and I that would be another super skill that I wish I had. The naming, uh, the naming uh, superstardom is that book. Do you keep like a notebook, or do you keep names? Do you gather names? Yes. Yep. I gather names. I have like field notes. You know, like those little brown notebooks. Uh, I have. Dozens of those around the house in different rooms, pockets of pants, and uh, so yeah. If I hear a good name, I write it down in there. The other, my other secret for sometimes uh, finding a good name is uh, searching NHL hockey rosters. There's a lot of crazy Finnish, Russian, yeah. French, Canadian. Yeah, names more so than other sports. Yeah, in other sports, so you can get these. Yeah, these kind of find these gems here and there. Do you have a motto as a writer? Um. The motto of the state of Wisconsin is forward. I think that's 
probably pretty apt for a writer too. You just have to keep, you just have to keep going. You just have to keep writing stuff down on the paper and understand that, you know, your book until it's published is more or less a living document. You can go back, you can fix it, you can ask for people's advice, see what works and what doesn't work, but you have to just keep going. Who is your first reader? Probably my agent, Rob McQuilkin, who um, I trust with my life and 90% of the time the guy is right. So he's he puts a lot of effort into editing my work and I put a lot of effort into thinking about his suggestions and, and how they work. Um, my wife is probably my second reader, but she's a tougher critic than Rob. So early on, I need like I need encouragement. <laughs> That's funny that your yeah. wife is tougher than your agent. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Well, my my agent, you know, he's <laughs> part of it is just the Jedi mind tricking somebody into doing the right thing or the artistic thing, and my wife will just say, I don't know about that. Or, I don't know. Yeah. What's your wife's profession? She's an attorney. Now that the Hearts of Men is finished, it's yep. delivered. Yep. How has it changed you? I think, I think there's a lot of about my dad and my boyhood in this book, and I spent a lot of time thinking about key moments in my childhood and in my teenage years, and reflecting about the kind of parent that my dad was and that my mom was and understanding more and more how much I love and respect my mom and thinking about what kind of parent I'm going to be and what kind of parent I hope I can be and understanding that people make mistakes and people get divorced and that's okay. Um... So I just spend a lot of time thinking about those sorts of issues, you know, on a more superficial level, I guess. It's my second novel. When you write the first one, you don't know what the hell you're doing. You're yeah. just you don't Yeah. Um but to finish another one is just uh, confidence building and edifying. And it's gotten good reception so far. It got nominated for the two highest awards for foreign fiction in France, which means a lot to me because France has always been really good to my career and oh. um, means that I can kind of continue to publish in Europe. And um, so, yeah. That's terrific. Congratulations. Thanks. Do you have an anecdote or a story that you want to share about a bookseller, an independent bookseller, or a bookstore? I've been super blessed because first off, when I started my career, my then publisher sent me on what was called like a walking tour. So I would just drive from bookstore to bookstore with arcs of shotgun love songs, introducing myself and people, you know, it was like, I was a total stranger. Nobody knew who I was. I hadn't put anything out. Everyone was really kind to me. I'd go out for beers with folks. And (laughs) um, so that whole experience was pretty amazing. But I mean, it's hard right off the top of my head to come up with one, but I can say that I was flying to Cincinnati to give a reading at Joseph Beth, and um, at the just before the flight took off, the Midwest was experiencing one of the worst storms that I had seen in a while, just like a supercell that blew through and was really dangerous. And so we didn't think we were going to be able to get on the plane. Uh, they said terrible turbulence, deadly lightning and thunderstorms, 
And then all at once, the stewardess said, all right, everybody get on the plane, but if you've got Dramamine, you want to take it now or even have a drink. Uh, it's going to be a tough flight, but buckle in and we'll make it together. And everybody is looking at one another like, oh my God, we're all, should, we, should we get on the plane now? And I got on the plane. Everyone was nervous. I was sitting next to this big guy who would be kind of about my dad's age. And I started talking to him about this book and about my dad. And we had a really good rapport to begin with. And then he got really, really quiet. And he didn't say anything to me for the rest of the flight until he stood up and he said, I hope you can forgive your dad. And he took off. I land in Cincinnati. I realize I don't have my driver's license, so I can't rent a car. So I've taken Uber all over the state of Ohio to do different stuff. Record cold in Cincinnati. Uh, and that was the weekend that Michael Link, who's a, a bookseller and a public relations person at uh, Joseph Beth, we formed a church called the Church of Patrick Swayze. Um, because we're to both get you through the weekend. aficionados of Patrick Swayze. That's a good story. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you made it through the flight. Me too. Jeez, I don't know that I would have gotten on the plane. But you had to go get your books. You didn't sold. really have another. Yeah, it felt like. Yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, I guess yeah. you would, though. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe I would have. Maybe I wouldn't have. But I think I would have been so scared. Yeah, I have a good life insurance policy, so I thought about it from that standpoint. Oh like, well, like, I'm worth something dead, and maybe my book sales will go up now that yeah, I've really. died in a fiery crash. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All publicity is good publicity, right. even when yeah. it's recounting your death. Is that what you were thinking? Right. <laughs> uh, there was a moment of you know tabulating, like you know everything. Uh, yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, I wish you a very calm, literally and figuratively, uh, publicity tour. Thanks. Uh, for the hearts of men, and I thank you for it, and I thank you for sharing the time with us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. All of the books you've heard mentioned here are available at your independent bookstore. And if you like what you've heard, please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents.